On this edition of the Scott Thompson Show podcast with Scott Radley sitting in for Scott Thompson, could you be sued for giving someone COVID? There are suggestions in some corners that you could be the subject of a lawsuit. Now, anyone can be sued for anything, but could you lose that lawsuit? We're going to talk to a lawyer about that one. We're also talking about everyone's favorite topic, he says, with his tongue planted in his cheek. Gas prices. Have you noticed what the gas prices are? And they're going up. Why? And what's happening here? And will they continue to go up? Will they set new records? Well, we're going to talk to someone who says, yes, we're heading that direction. And, and... There is a group in Norway that is trying to put all the music in the world into a vault deep in the mountains. In case something bad happens, all the music can be found by the next generation or the aliens or whoever. Is this a good idea? Stick around. We'll talk about it. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Scott Thompson Show here on 900 CHML. Thanks for being with us. Uh, I'm Scott Radley. Scott Thompson is still on vacation, which is great. He deserves it. He's getting some good rest. He'll be back in full form next week. First, though, this is a strange question that has popped up. Someone asked this, and I think it's a remarkably interesting question, and we want to get into this because, you know, you theoretically, I guess, could be affected by this question. And that's this, could you be sued for giving COVID to somebody else? If you carry the virus and you pass it along to someone else and they get really sick, could they turn around to you and say, you are negligent, you owe me money. I got really sick. I lost time. I lost work. I, whatever. Well, we're going to talk about that one. I want to bring in Gregory Sills. He's an employment lawyer and associate with Sanfiru Tumarkin. Uh, they specialize in employment law and other forms of law. So, uh, thanks for doing this, Gregory. Really appreciate it. Oh, thanks for having me on. Well, let's dive right into that one. Could you be sued for giving someone COVID? I mean, in theory, yes. Uh, practically speaking, there are a number of hurdles uh, for such a claim. Um, you know, for one, in the context of it being in the workplace, um, by all accounts, if you were to catch COVID in the workplace, this is likely a WSIB issue, being workplace safety and insurance. Um, and these type of claims actually have the effect of barring your ability to bring a civil action against your employer. Uh, so the workplace nature of this may negate any claim at the outset. Now, you know, obviously suing somebody individually is a bit different. Um, and I'll get to that. But, you know, even if you can get around the WSIB issue, um, you have to improve that, in fact, the person you're alleging was being negligent. So just because you caught COVID, say, in the workplace, that doesn't necessarily mean that anyone was negligent. If there's proper PPE protocols in place and and public health guidelines are being followed, then, you know, it becomes increasingly difficult to prove that anyone was being negligent. And so beyond that, Outside of a large outbreak at your workplace, how can you even prove that you contracted it there and not, say, at the grocery store, right? It's, it becomes very hard to peg down the exact source of where you got it. And, you know, one of the big things that you need to consider with respect to negligence claims is that there comes along with it the principle of contributory negligence. And so uh, this refers to the fact that you as an individual may have undertaken some activities that contribute to you contracting COVID. So if you say you aren't vaccinated and why weren't you vaccinated? Or if you aren't following the protocols, why were you being so flippant about them? 
Um, a court may find that if your behavior made you more susceptible to catching COVID, then you may be uh, part of your any award that, if you're successful, may be reduced. All right, let's go through a few of those things that you just said, because you said an awful lot right there and a lot <laughs> yeah. of different points. Um, negligence. So if someone was to say, I caught COVID and it was because of you, that Gregory, you had it. I was sitting next to you in the office. I know you had it and now I've got it. Therefore, one plus one must equal two. As you say, first of all, very difficult to prove that for the same reason, I would assume that if you got food poisoning, unless there was a huge outbreak of food poisoning from the same restaurant, if you say I went and had dinner at X restaurant and I got sick afterwards, pretty tough to prove that unless you've got a sample of the food that shows it's got botulism or something in it, right? I mean, it becomes very difficult right. to establish that. Exactly. And that connection is absolutely necessary for a court to find liability. All right. Now, even if I show up at work and I have some symptoms of COVID, but decide that I was going to show up anyway, is it a defense on my part? If someone was to say, well, you were negligent and careless if you said, I just thought I had a common flu, like the symptoms weren't strong, I just had an itchy throat or I had something, I never thought for a second I had COVID, would that defend me? I'm not sure that would necessarily defend you, but as I mentioned, this would be a workplace issue. You would be on workers' comp if you got it, if, if, you, if you contracted it at work. Um, in the context of an individual giving it to you, the reality is it's probably the, the best bet of commencing a legal action against an individual, it would have to be in the form of the tort of assault and battery, not so much negligence. Wow, okay. Um, so for example, if someone had COVID and knowingly coughed on you as an attempt to try and spread the virus. There was intent. May, yes, then you may have a claim against that individual in tort. And so, you know, that that's more likely to have a bit more teeth to it than, you know, a negligence claim where, Let's be honest, there, it's pretty tough. There's a lot of people that are asymptomatic, that everybody is, you know, not everybody, but a large percentage of the population is vaccinated and double vaccinated. Um, so, you know, again, if, if in the workplace people are following uh, the protocols, it's pretty hard to say that anyone is necessarily negligent and, and be even tougher to find, uh, given the, the difficulty of connecting the two, saying that it, you got it from there, it'd be tough to find a liability in court. All right. So, Gregor, you and I sit next to each other in the office again. Same scenario. I have not been vaccinated. I've chosen not to get vaccinated. And as a result, I come in and give it to you. Am I negligent in that case? No, that, not necessarily. And again, because, you know, it becomes down to the issue of uh, vaccination is not mandatory. Um, the only time vaccination can be mandatory is when the government pa passes a specific act to do that, such as in the, the Vaccination of School Pupils Act, where unless you have an exemption, you are required to get these vaccinations for, you know, measles, mumps, rubella, chicken pox, those kind of things. Um, if, if the person next to you, again, chooses not to be vaccinated, that is their choice. Um, obviously, we, the, the important part is for employers to continue to have these protective protocols in place to make sure that, you know, in any event right now, you shouldn't be working within six feet of someone. And if you, if you are required to work in close quarters, there should, regardless of whether people are vaccinated, there should still be PPE and preventative measures in place. 
where does the person who gets it, and again, we're talking theoretically here, we're, and the question that we're talking about, if you're just joining us, is could you be sued for giving someone COVID? Some people believe the answer is yes. I, I, I'm with Gregory, and I'm not the lawyer, but it sounds like it would be a stretch to be able to prove it. But where does the responsibility also rely on the person who would get it? Because theoretically, I would assume if you've got both vaccines and you're following the protocols and wearing a mask and staying at a distance, you should be prevented from getting it. So there's got to be some onus on you to look after yourself as well, no? Well, and that's where the, the principle of contributory negligence comes in. Because if, if for whatever reason let's, that you do have a successful claim, if you have undertaken those measures, then you haven't been contributorily negligent. You've taken the appropriate steps. And so if you have a successful claim, maybe it won't be reduced. But for those people who are, aren't following the proper measures, if you have a successful action at the end of the day, it may be reduced uh, just because you weren't taking the proper steps in order to mitigate the risk. Um, the whole purpose of the courts, you know, it's not to uh, have people come after each other. It's to find resolutions and it's it's to take a pragmatic approach and view it as to, you know, how could all parties have acted in order to avoid this and how can we resolve the upstanding issues? Yeah, and, and I would I would think uh, by that, I mean, even if it's difficult to imagine a successful lawsuit anyway, if you didn't get the vi- the vaccine, and now you get COVID because of a coworker, I would think you would have no case at all. It would be a complete non-starter if you've done nothing to try and protect yourself. I suspect the courts wouldn't have much time for you. But again, that's just my my assessment. Um, we have yet to face anything like that. And until, mm-hmm. you know, until that type of issue is heard, you just don't know because the, the courts have, have come out with some decisions we agree with and some decisions we don't. Mm-hmm. So well, I will bet what would, what amount would you be willing to bet? I'll go high on this one, even though I'm not a gambling man that before this whole thing is over, we see a lawsuit like this. I'll, I'll bet oh. you money. One of them pops oh. up somewhere. Yeah, either it's here or somewhere else. I, I agree. I'm sure that someone is going to bring type of, type of an action, and, and we'll see where it goes. But uh, if if we're dealing with non-vaccinated parties, it, it may be a significant non-starter. But boy, if the courts, if this ever happened, and I, again, I I really do believe it's likely in somewhere in North America for someone to try this. If the courts ever sided with the person saying that yes, person X gave person Y COVID and is therefore um, due for some sort of payout. It'll be chaos. There will be thousands of these. Then everyone who's got it will try and sue someone. Exactly, and from a and from a public policy perspective, it, it makes it increasingly unlikely that we'll see these type of actions go anywhere. Um, and you know that's largely due in part. I think that the biggest uh, rationale that the court can use is to say that look, we cannot say that you actually got it from this person. You could have contracted it any number of places. Um, so unless the person that we're talking about was in complete isolation and then had the only person they came in contact with was somebody else who tested positive, I think it's pretty hard to establish. Um, and I largely see this as quite a bit of a non-starter, at least in the Ontario judicial system. One other thing on this one, do we ever do we ever hear about this with other things? I'm wondering, I mean, look, I, I understand COVID is the story of the year, year and a half. I understand that there are cases that are very, very bad. But there are also people who die of the flu who have contracted it from someone or have contracted some other illness. Have we ever had cases where someone has tried to sue someone for passing along influenza or something? 
nothing nothing to the extent of a, of a negligence claim um you know again I, I have seen some early stages where people in the during the pandemic have been charged with uh, assault and battery and then you know likely for for intentionally coughing on someone um and in those circumstances then you know following the criminal charges for assault and battery uh it's likely that a civil suit follows and then you can use the you know the, the same types of facts to uh try and pursue a civil action but uh no as far as you know getting sick from the flu it's uh again very very much a similar non-starter all right one other one though we have seen cases and i believe you can correct me i believe successful cases where we've seen someone be sued and lose for passing along an std um that why would that be a different scenario well, because with respect to an STD, it's uh, it's a very um, purposeful action, right? You, you are aware that, that you have uh, an STD or an STI, and by and you know the risk of transmitting transmitting it by intercourse. That is a decision you've made. Looking at it differently here, you know, you're out in public, you're going to come across people. It, it's much more happen chance. It's much less intentional, and that's the the biggest difference in the situation here. It's a fascinating topic. As I say, I, I will be stunned if before the end of COVID, we haven't heard a case somewhere be tried like this. But um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm as an amateur here, I would be in full agreement, Gregory. It's, it, it seems like it would be really, really, really hard to prove A, who you got it from and B, that there was some negligence or worse intent. Although... Although maybe the case that we eventually see somewhere, assuming it does happen, will be the one where for whatever reason someone has coughed intentionally at someone, even if it was a joke, and then someone unfortunately got it. Who, who knows if, and who knows what happens if that's the case? I think that's far more likely than anything else. Um, I, I think, especially when we're dealing with um, anti-lockdown protests and perhaps people coughing on officers intentionally, that type of thing, I can see those type of charges for assault coming up far more than uh, anything we've necessarily talked about here. Fascinating stuff. Gregory Sills, employment lawyer and associate with Samfiru Tumark, and really appreciate your time today. Thank you for doing this. Oh, thanks for having me. Take care. Today and joining me just for a few minutes here, a guy who um, may have the busiest life in the world. He does. He fills in in the morning. He does the news wheel. And now we decide to drag him onto the air one more time because Rick Zamperin is not only all those things and more. He is also the host of the fifth quarter on Ticat Games after Ticat Games where you can call in and voice your opinion in various stages of sobriety (laughs) with the Ticats back on the field this Thursday, the fifth quarter will be back. You can call in and say what you think for good or for bad. But Rick, you also have some other news today. Big news today for uh, all our listeners on 900 CHML. The Hamilton Tiger Cats are jumping back on board, and you will be able to hear Tiger Cats games on CHML once again, starting with Thursday night's big season opener against the defending champion Winnipeg Blue Bombers. We are excited to get, have the Tiger Cats back and looking forward to a tremendous campaign this year, which will hopefully culminate in a Tiger Cats championship at home in the Grey Cup final on December 12th. So pregame shows, 
game day, like game play by play, and yep. then you with the fifth quarter after that. So a full evening's entertainment every time they play. Correct. Uh, basically five or six hours of tremendous action on the field with a one-hour pregame show. Of course, the in-game broadcast, the play-by-play announcer is R.J. Broadhead of Sportsnet fame. Uh, a great play-by-play announcer in the hockey world is going to uh, change gears to football. Is color analyst Luke Tasker following in his father Steve's footsteps in the broadcast industry. So Luke is back in the game. And then, yeah, after every game, the fifth quarter will broadcast live here on 900 CHML. Fantastic. What um, what do you think is the highest blood alcohol level anyone's ever called in with? <laughs> uh, not having a measuring device myself, I would say at least, I don't know, double, triple. But the thing is, at least they're safe at home or they're taking a designated driver back home. Uh, yes, absolutely. And uh, we do encourage the calls. You do not have to have been drinking. No. Um, it, it sometimes makes it more interesting. But no, you are. Uh, we just welcome any calls to the fifth quarter. Will or, uh, Will Will's back at the station. Rick always loves having you on and does a fantastic job. It's a great show afterwards. So there you go. Big announcement. The Ticats back on 900 CHML. So uh, Rick is... Um, Way to go. Way to pull this all together. And now people know they can have a one-stop shopping experience for the Ticats. Definitely. Looking forward to it. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. One thing I know that makes all of us just giddy with excitement is the opportunity to pay more for gas. Nothing, nothing brings us greater joy than higher prices at the pumps, right? So this this should be the greatest summer ever, if that's true, because analysts are saying we could be heading for the highest average price ever. Yes, around here. That would mean higher than 141.6 cents per liter, higher than $1.41 a liter. That is exciting. He says very sarcastically. No, it's not exciting at all. It's it's horrible. Who wants to pay $1.41 or more a liter for gas? What What is going on? Well, I'll tell you one guy who can probably explain some of this. Now, his name is Dan McTague. He's the president of Canadians for Affordable Energy. He's a former liberal MP. He joins us now. Dan, thanks for doing this today. Oh, good to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me. I'm terrified to ask you this question, but I'm going to anyway. How high could gas prices go? Well, it depends what happens in the short term. I think once the uh, COVID uh, Delta uh, uh, variant uh, takes uh, full shape and, of course, uh, gets behind us, uh, you know, the, the sky could be potentially the limit. And I say that only because uh, it doesn't matter for it's $75 a barrel or $70 a barrel. What matters uh, is that the world demand for oil is going through the roof. And it's going to continue, not for the next two years or four years, but for the next 10 to 15 years. Sorry to disappoint the, the environmentalists and the great <laughs> great resetters and the build back batters, uh, but oil is in massive demand. And it's going to go from 95 million barrels a day of use to uh, about uh, 105 million barrels a day of use. So that's going to take a bit of time, and uh, I, I suspect that we may not see this in the short term. What's happening is that every Monday morning, uh, traders get in and they get all nervous about what they heard about the weekend of the Delta variant. And it's, it's serious, uh, but it's not life-threatening in the sense of, uh, you know, everybody who is vaccinated is, is going to be affected by it. But rather than getting into the science of all that, all, of all that uh, the, the reality is that energy prices are going through the roof, like many other commodities, except that this one happens to be very pivotal. And just the time in which we're ignoring it, uh, you know, setting it aside, thinking nothing of it, trivializing it, thinking we can get rid of it, uh, it's going to continue to rise. 
Okay, so what are the reasons then? I mean, because uh, like it kind of flies in the face for me of some logic, so you can sort me out why, because it seems we're still not doing all the things we did before. We're still not in airplanes like we used to be. We're still not driving as much. My car essentially sits in the driveway more often than not because I no longer have to commute to the office. Yeah. Yeah. So well, why well, why is it going up so much if we're not having the same demand? Well, it's the fact that in the United States it is going up and it is breaking records in terms of demand and there is a bit of pent-up demand there. But that aside, I mean, what we have to look at here is the fact that while well, we, we spend a bit more time looking at, hey, I'm not demanding as much or I'm demanding more than I did pre-COVID or I want to buy all these things that I saved up a lot of money on because I didn't have anything to spend it on during a year and a half of lockdown. you got to look at the supply side. And the supply side, it doesn't look very good. Uh, OPEC isn't going to do us any favors along with Russia. The United States uh, used to be self-sufficient when it came to energy production, but it's now succumbed to uh, the uh, environmental, social governance, uh, you know, uh, sustainability type of uh, model in which you are seeing Less and less oil being produced, more demand, less oil. Uh, the inevitable is about to uh, is about to explode, and it's not going to be pretty. Um, there are grave concerns now that we might actually see what's called a green inflation. That is to say that uh, because we've doubled down so heavily, disinvested in oil and future oil productions, the takedown rate or the uh, the uh, the write down rate of a lot of the uh, oil wells that are being drilled are not being replaced, and for that reason alone. Uh, we could be threatened with much higher energy prices. Even if oil, as I mentioned earlier, would hit $80, $85 a barrel, we have to also include here in Canada that we do, in fact, uh, have some pretty significant taxes. And we've had a lot of them larded on us in the past couple of years. Uh, Certainly two taxes that I'm familiar with that the federal liberals imposed here in Ontario uh, during the height of a a steep, deep recession caused by the pandemic. We still saw and managed to get, uh, you know, gas prices, uh, you know, moving up now as a result, showing that... uh, you know, a lot of people are confused. Hey, it's not a hundred dollars barrel. How come I paying a dollar forty for a liter of gasoline? Well, you got all these taxes imposed on it, and you also have another factor. The Canadian dollar is really, frankly, lack of a better term, as my kids would say, sucks. Uh, all of our commodities are priced in U.S. terms, and when you see the Canadian dollar losing as much value as it has, it means that uh, we're not getting the full advantage of uh, of uh, our exports getting to the United States and getting other places around the world. So that's also driving up prices of gasoline. When we last saw oil and gasoline trading at this level, say a dollar forty to a dollar forty-three, um, you know, one uh, one U.S. dollar costs us one hundred and seven pennies. Today, it's one hundred and twenty-six, and so that really does make up a difference, and it explains why we got this invisible uh, upward push on gas prices. All right, I want to go through a few of the things here. Um break these down bit by bit. So when the fact is, when you talk about that, we haven't invested, even we, we've, we know about the pipeline story. We know about the arguments about whether pipelines should or should not be built. And we know that a lot of them are hung up in bureaucratic or political red tape, but even if they'd gone ahead, none of these would be ready to produce oil or gasoline or petroleum or whatever to, to transport it right now. So does that, that has no effect on our prices today. That would be for down the road. Oh, I don't know, Trans Mountain Pipeline uh, would have been built in 2017, 2016, and finished. Uh, we're not for all the opposition and the navel-gazing uh, Energy East would be close to completion. Uh, the Keystone Pipeline, proposed back in 2010, it sure as heck would have been uh, proposed were it not or in place. 
So I think a lot of these pipelines, which take two or three years to build in the United States under normal circumstances, are taking 10 to 12 years in Canada. Uh, yeah, I, I think it's fair to say those pipelines would have been there were it not for the obstructions. And that's the intent. Obstructionism, green obstructionism, is, has a direct cost, not just in terms of carbon taxes, but indirect costs. The kind of things you're paying for right now uh, in terms of higher prices for everything. Uh, and yet, you know what? Someone's got to la- someone's got to label these things because, frankly, they've been getting off uh, scot free for quite some time, uh, and uh, no one's taking into consideration the high, extravagant cost of going down this uh, renewables road and this woke road of, you know, uh, we can all yeah, get rid of our oil and fossil fuels and everything. We can simply, you know, rely on windmills, which of course require fossil fuels to be built, EVs, which require fossil fuels to be built uh, to build them, uh, you know, solar panels. All of these things are both unreliable, very expensive, can't be realized without subsidies, and do not have the availability in terms of energy that uh, we need that we get uh, from oil, gasoline, natural gas, that kind of thing. The The fact that the price of uh, a barrel is going up, it's still not where it was once upon a time, but it's going up. Is that not, is that not a trade-off, a good trade-off for Canada? Because, yes, we're going to pay more at the pumps, but those barrels of oil bring in more taxes, which help the economy, which bring up the loony, which are in the big, bigger sense, is that not positive for Canada? It is if we can get our product to market. These little piggies we can't get to market, unfortunately. Uh, we've you know, pretty much hemmed ourselves in, short of using rail, which is extremely expensive. Uh, we have no ability to take advantage of the world's need for greater oil and growth. And so we don't take advantage. And it's why we see a 10 to $15 a barrel discount. Um, so $71, $70 a barrel. Uh, let's see, WCS is trading at about 56 57 So we're not getting quite the kick that we should. More importantly, we could, we could double the amount of output. But again, for the reasons we've just talked about, uh, you know, Canadians have spent a lot of time permitting uh, the, uh, uh, the the throttling off of their economy. And, it, you know, so we're not talking about, you know, a particular product. We're talking about the most important revenue generator uh, of the Canadian economy, the oil and gas sector. And people kick it around like it's, you know, it's it's no big deal. It's a massive deal. And when you start messing around with it, you wind up messing around with higher prices. So when people come to me and say they're complaining about $1.40, $1.41 a litre, and the price going up for just about everything else that it touches, including, of course, food and other products that we that we see, uh, you know, we have no one to blame but ourselves, and to a large extent, our own ignorance. Because it has everything we've done here. We could make energy a lot more affordable, but we're going out of our way and there is no political leadership in this country that does not take into account the need to, uh, to, to impose higher prices. What I think we're hitting here is a tipping point where economic recovery will not take place, not just in Canada, but around the world globally, because I think we're doubling down, tripling down on green energy. And as a result of it, uh, we're likely to cause uh, uh, an economic recovery to, uh, to wind up, unfortunately, stillborn. Well, let's go back to that taxes idea then that you suggested a moment ago, because there's one thing here that I I don't know that a lot of people look at. And I was, uh, frankly, Dan, I was surprised when I looked at it today. Um, American fuel prices right now are at a seven-year high, yet that works out to about 80 cents a liter south of the border. We're at a dollar 41, we're heading towards a dollar 40. We're 60 cents a liter higher. Are those all taxes? No, uh, a good part of it's taxes, but as I mentioned earlier, the Americans begin from the get-go with about a 13, 14 cent a liter difference simply because of the Canadian exchange rate. Now, the Canadian exchange rate, if you look, when we sell a lot more oil, oil prices go up, the Canadian dollar tends to strengthen in value. Traditionally, 
when oil prices went up, so did the value of the Canadian dollar, which increased their purchasing power. Here we've lost grit. The three things are not just taxes, of course, uh, although it does help to mention that we are paying a 10 cent a litre tax. This is over and above the excise tax. This is over and above the provincial road tax of 14.7 cents. You're paying 8.84 cents a litre plus 13 percent. That's a 10 cent kick in the pants that you didn't pay before. And of course, you have to look at the Canadian value of the Canadian dollars I mentioned, which has another significant impact. The other one that a lot of people tend to look overlook, and say if you're looking at national prices in Canada, is not just the taxes we know, but the taxes we don't know. I spent a lot of time in British Columbia speaking with your sister station there, the KNW, the ones who were only objective enough to recognize that the provincial government there had lured on a second carbon tax called the BC Low Carbon Fuel Standard. That's the identical carbon copy clean fuel standard that Justin Trudeau is going to impose on Canadians, and it's 15 cents a litre. That's coming to your neighbourhood come January 1st, 2023. So what, what are we now? We're in the month of August. So you're looking at 16 months from now. Uh, we are going to get a, such a swift kick in the wallet, the likes of which we've never seen. This idea that, oh, well, we're doing this because we want you to drive electric vehicles. I mean, look, you don't go around strangling people because you want to make sure they have a better life. But that's exactly what your government is doing with no consequence or effect. By the way, the two carbon taxes in B.C., still see carbon emissions going to the roof. So it's not having the effect. Uh, if we really want to get serious and real about this, we're going to start to back off a little bit on the stuff and say, you know, internal combustion engines. Um, my neighbor just bought a brand new Ford Escape, Titan, TMX, whatever. It's better mileage than is less expensive than almost any vehicle on the road. He can take his four kids with him and drive around uh, and do 923 kilometers on that on that thing, tankful to tankful, take five minutes to replace the fuel he has and go another you know 923 kilometers. I think we have to stop this idea of self-loathing and kicking uh, Canadian industry in the teeth because you know it's going to come back to haunt us. Once the mortgage rates start to reflect the fact that country is in massive debt and there isn't the economic recovery that we need, and once all the CERB and all the other uh, support programs end in September, uh, I think we're going to be facing a pretty tough time. And part of that agenda has to be a sober look at the fact that we've gone a little too far and overdid this kind of idea that green is everything while recognizing uh, and diminishing the very things that make our economy strong. And that's unfortunately for those out there who are really green, uh, crapping on the uh, oil and gas sector is only coming back to hurt every Canadian. Well, I mean, look, there's a lot of people who very much would like for the environment to be cleaned up and all the rest, and I absolutely get that. But it seems that um, we're not in a position right now to abandon gas. We, we just, we, we don't have, everyone doesn't have an electric car. Everyone can't go to other forms of heating, which means we don't really have much of an option right now. And we're going to have to pay these bills for gasoline, which even if you say it's 15 cents off what the Americans have, that's still 40, 45 cents of taxes extra on top of the Americans. That, that's a that's a tough yep. nut if you're trying to drive around all the time, oh, yeah. if you have to for work. Yeah, BC pays 70 cents a liter in gasoline, and that's not the indirect cost of their, you know, blocking pipelines, which the government and their politics did for a long time in blocking TMX. Again, when you when the Canadian dollar suffers, it often suffers because oil prices are hurt or our inability to get oil and gas to market is really affected. So this has, you know, real reverberations. And I, I'm thinking not so much of the people involved in the debate, yes or no, because so far it's been yes, let's double down on green. We don't hear much from the no except guys like me. Uh, but what we are not looking into, and that's something that, you know, my, by, by, by work, by tradition, uh, by 
history, by every DNA in my body, you got to look out for the consumer. And unfortunately, Canadians are, are faced with a gargantuan uh, hike in the cost of, uh, of moving, much of it directly the result of our fooling around with energy. And to give an example, take away gasoline and put in the word electricity. You like the fact that your electrical bills, which were five and a half cents a kilowatt hour, are now as high as 17 and a half cents, and, and slaves to go higher were not for the provincial government taking in a $6.5 billion hit to, uh, to shield us from the stupidity of the Green Energy Act. And now, of course, these same actors who push this stuff now want to get rid of natural gas plants, uh, the kind of which they believe Quebec can somehow you know, sell us all this electricity, which they cannot. Ontario, by the way, newsflash, Ontario sells electricity into Quebec, not the other way around. That aside, I think we have to start looking at... Uh, uh, something I call the old CRTC rule. Consumers rarely take into consideration. Ask your politicians mm-hmm. to start thinking about uh, the bottom line for people rather than these fantasy ma- worlds and ma- of magic make-believe that they keep conjuring up on the green side. Well, I, I will say one other thing about this, and you just, you mentioned electricity. I mean, look, even if even if we were to say uh, for, you know, we live in a cold climate, we have to heat our homes in the winter, and we say we're going to yep. move away from fossil fuels, I'm going to use electricity. Well, based on the numbers that we know of what it costs us, it would decimate our pocketbook if we yep. suddenly had to go with straight electricity because of government rules and intervention that we've seen here in Ontario with prices going through the roof. It, it kind of... It seems, Dan, anyway, it kind of leaves us boxed in. You either pay a yeah. fortune for uh, for gas and for natural fossil fuels, or you pay a fortune for electricity, unless you're, you know, in enough space that I suppose you can build a windmill on your own land and hope that it can raise enough. I, I don't know what else you do except for pay higher bills. Well, we've built clean energy infrastructure. 80% of our, of our electricity is generated by hydro and by, nat- and by nuclear. 16% is natural gas and backup in days when it's pretty hot or cold. Uh, the other two or three or four percent is renewables. And we are paying five, we're paying five times the rate to introduce and to bring those in, whether they work or not, than whatever we have in terms of a, an excess. We have to spill over and give to the Americans at one-tenth the cost. This is absolute insanity. And what does it mean for the average person? Well, let me quantify if I, if I were to say Canada should continue on the road of, you know, responsible reduction and emissions and things like that, you know, this whole plan right now is probably costing Canadians about an extra two to 3000 bucks a year. That's a, the hit to an average family on the totality, the, in, the direct costs on electricity, on natural gas, on fuel, and the indirect costs as they spill over into other areas of the economy. This is the worst possible time you want to be experimenting with driving up prices and breaking the backs of consumers, because I'll tell you, once the real estate bubble is over, uh, the fan is going to hit that stuff that we call dung, and it's going to create a real economic mess, the likes of which we have never seen. And I think I'll have a lot more people joining me with this idea of slowing down this nonsense and this, uh, uh, this, this, this climate bedwetting that is destroying this great country of ours. Dan McTague, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy. Really appreciate the time, as always, Dan. Thanks for doing this today. Always a pleasure. Looking forward to more. Bye-bye now. Uh, you know, it, look, it, this is this is always a tough position because I know many people listening, probably most people listening say we want the economy to be, or the environment, pardon me, to be good. We want a clean environment. We want things to be cleaner and air to be cleaner and all the rest of the stuff. I, and that's, you know, there's no, there's nothing bad about wanting to have a clean environment for sure. Yet if we're not ready, if our, if our system and our cars and everything else are not prepared to be able, it's not like we don't have a choice right now. I don't think 
most people, most people can't afford an electric car right now. Um, we don't have a choice right now to say, snap my fingers. Okay, I'm going completely green and my life will not be affected. It's a, it's a, it's a this or that. It's not a this or that. It's not, we don't, we don't. So, you know, I, I look at this and I just think to myself, it, we keep hearing that governments at all levels keep talking about, oh, we're here for the middle class. We're here for the, we're fighting for the middle class. We're going to bring up the middle class. And then what happens? All these taxes, who is being affected by these taxes that may have a, a, a may have a good um, intention, but reality is who gets killed by these taxes? The middle class. It's the middle class. We're all, if, if, if gas goes up to $1.40, $1.50, $1.60, as Dan was sort of alluding to there, you think that's going to concern the millionaires and billionaires? Uh-uh. You think it's going to concern the people who don't drive? Uh-uh. The middle class. Just crazy. Go, go drive around your, when you're out today or tomorrow. Look at what gas prices are right now. Tell me who's being affected by that. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. So we just talked about gas prices being somewhat apocalyptic. Well, let's go full apocalypse here. Let's just talk about what happens when the apocalypse comes and civilization is wiped out, but there's just one guy or one girl left on planet Earth. Like in that show, The Last Man on Earth. If you've seen it, you know what I'm talking about. Well, what do they do for music when that happens? Because all the world's music will have gone, will have been gone. And they'll be humming a tune or two, but well, a solution has been reached. Thank goodness. Thank goodness a solution has been reached before this kind of thing happens, that the last person on earth will have good music to listen to. Because a group in Norway is building a hardened vault under the mountains or something in a dark cave protected by ice and snow and all the good stuff that Norway offers where a library of the world's digital music will be protected and saved. No electromagnetic radiation will be able to penetrate the vault. It will be safe from a nuclear strike. Nothing could possibly destroy the world's music in this special place in Norway. Now, a couple things. Uh, first of all, this would mean, of course, that if the last man on earth or last woman on earth was out there, he or she had better live in Norway <laughs> or else they may not have access. And secondly, hopefully somewhere outside this vault on the wall, chiseled into the rock, they leave the code to be able to open the lock because otherwise they're going to be wandering around going, wow, a lot of great music in there. How do we get to it? No idea. Nonetheless, interesting idea that they are going to protect all the world's music somehow. I want to bring in Eric Alper, music and pop culture expert. He's a publicist. He's a shameless idealist. And if you were here last week, you'll know he is also a generous guy because we had him on here to talk last week. And rather than talking, we were talking about Kim Mitchell. He produces Kim Mitchell for us as a surprise and passes up on all his time to talk. So, Eric, thanks for coming back. I appreciate it. Oh, no problem. Sorry, I don't have anybody from from, uh, from Norway. Sweden, uh, right, from Norway yeah. on this list, yeah. Well, okay, so I, I'm listening to this idea, and obviously there are some issues with it, as I just alluded to, and they're more silly issues, but is it even possible, if the idea here is to gather the world's music and collect the the, the entirety of the world's music in one place, is that even possible to decide that we're going to get all the music of the world? 
Yeah, I, I, I think it is. You know, when we think about just the sheer amount of data, say, the Internet or large companies like Amazon um, have in their system, the fact that there are buildings that house massive computers that bring it down to high-density QR codes or bits and bytes, it is possible. You know, one of the – this idea kind of came about originally – because they were, this company was trying to come up with a system to be more ecologically friendly for all the record labels around the world who house music in various points in different locations. Meaning that if a band records a song, it goes to 10 different places. And then from then on in, then it's mass produced for the world. And then you, when you times that by, the one and a half million new songs that are being uploaded to Spotify each and every single week, time that by, you know, the X amount of hundreds of millions of songs that are available to the world. Um, it, it does make sense on paper. I'm just mad that they didn't ask me to house it because I would have loved to have every single <laughs> song that's ever recorded in history. I'm almost there. Um, but it, it, in on paper, it does make a lot of sense. The problem is, is that the record labels and the people that own the master recordings would never, ever allow a third party to be the only place where you can get the original master recording. But, you know, this idea is kind of cute and fun, I think, the fact that, you know, space aliens that come within a thousand years aren't going to be able to crack the code and listen to Rebecca Black's Friday and figure out <laughs> who the hell we were. <laughs> okay, so I so I agree with you technically, like as far as ability to house the music with with memory cards, all that kind of stuff. Yes, I think we could do that. My bigger question is what counts? Because yeah, you know what, you can have recorded songs. You but but what about songs that are people are singing in? You know the Serengeti, the 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 Bedouin who were you know, or the the plainsmen in Africa, or like it to say that we're going to keep a recording of all music seems like we're automatically leaving out a bunch of music. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and, and I, I don't know if they've even thought about this, but there was a Voyager Golden Record that was put into space and it had a song from Chuck Berry. It had a Beatles song. It also had. Um, uh, a, a young girl saying hello in like 150 different languages. It also had sounds of nature, of birds and of frogs. So it wasn't just music. It was actual sounds of, of things in the world that we sometimes take for granted. Um, so yeah, you know, it's funny because when they put a call out, at least on social media, on what music and what songs should be on there. It was the stuff that you and I would probably think of right off the top. Maybe a Beatles song, maybe Marvin Gaye. Um, I'm still voting for Friday from Rebecca Black. Maybe, you know, um, a classical music piece, maybe it's Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. But I think people forget that the world is a very big place. And just because we're a little bit North American, you know, uh, you know, leverage here. There are sounds of, of folk songs that have been brought from generation to generation for hundreds of years in parts that we don't even think of. So I think that's going to be part of the issue too, is, is, you know, what songs are actually going to be in there and why, and making sure that nobody feels left out. 
Okay, let's go to an even broader question then. Is all the music in the world worth preserving? Or should we should we have a, a a panel of experts who say this song? Yeah, we want to keep this one. If we're gonna, if the day comes that it's going to be for the aliens or some other species or whatever, do we really want to have this song, this song, and this song? If we can even call them songs, or do we want to have a choice so we can get the best ten thousand songs of all time or something? Yeah, th- this company has put out a call, uh, at least on social media, not getting a, a huge amount of response. I don't think people coming out of COVID want to know a thousand years what, what you know, the next group of, of batch of human beings are going to think of. Um, but yeah, I, I think that there should be a panel of, of radio show hosts from Hamilton like you. I think it should be, I think I should be on the panel. I um, I think musicologists... I put you on before me, let me tell you. Right, right. Um, I probably musicologists from around the world. I think historians who know music from 200, 300, 400 years ago. I think there should be people of different cultures, of different um, different nationalities and, and ethnic groups. Um, and, give you know, a thousand songs is really... It, it it's a lot of music when you think about it. I, I you know, you can probably get through ten or fifteen songs um right off the top. I think most people can kind of think of songs that they would want in their own vault. But after that it starts to get, you know, how many how many white bands from Liverpool or England do we need from the nineteen sixties, you know, and then kind of act as that representative of should we have the early days of rock and roll? Do we have jazz? And if so, who gets to represent jazz in the year 20, you know, 3121? And again, this only includes recorded songs, which I I kind of think misses out on something because the, the thing is, and we don't really think about this too often because we can go on to Apple Music or Spotify or whatever, and we get the choices that are there, but m- music, the, the concept of music, it's so widespread and so endless that it, it, if the idea is let's choose some great music and put it there, that's that's fine. But if the idea is truly the idea, we're going to capture all the music, it seems yeah. like a ridiculous goal. It seems like an impossible task. Yeah. And, and you know, and just the sheer amount of instruments. Do you have a derudu from Australia? Do you have a violin? Do you have... Um, do you, do you have a, a 17th century drum um, from from Africa? Do you have certain instruments that are available um, to anybody right now, like a guitar or a kazoo or a harmonica? And then do you also have, you know, um, uh, you know, the first kind of guitar, like a lute from the Shakespearean times on there because, you know, you have the ability to put not just music, but sound. And you have to, I think, also explain what this is in order to put it into context, because even a thousand years from now, the things that we take for granted, like, you know, the drummer hit this drum using sticks with their arms. Like who's to say that in a thousand years we're gonna have arms? You know, it's just it's one of those things where nature has the has the ability to form and change into different kind of beings. And uh, you know, the context of what this music is and what that sound is might still be confusing a thousand years from now, even though that we take it for granted. All right, so let me go one more step further in the deep philosophical discussion world because we keep moving this along. 
we're, we're we know that there is a vault somewhere in I can't remember where now to protect all the seeds of the world so that if anything were to happen, we could grow plants again. This is the only other one I can think of. I mean, there probably are others, but why is music so important that people would feel the need we need to do this for music as opposed to just saying to the next people who come along, make your own music? Yeah, I, I think, you know, one of the fascinating things about music is that it can really reveal a lot about the times of what's going on, the technology that was used, the words that are being used, the way that the enunciation is, the topic that that person is happening, is happening to sing about. It can tell you a lot about politics, sociology, um, what was going on with the economy around the world. And, and that's fascinating to people to figure out how we got to where we are today. It all depends on how far you want to look at. But, you know, it, it seems like when people want to discuss history, they try to put it into context to learn from it and make sure that the good things happen and the mistakes don't happen again. Um, and historians look to the arts as the way to figure that out without having a lot of factors instigated that could taint the findings, meaning that it's as free as you can be by writing a song. You can be um, without, um, without a stance in, in writing a play or a movie, but a song in three minutes can tell you a lot about what is going on in that person's life. And I think the ability to, to figure out where we've come in the last 400 years, you can easily take a look at the music and culture that happened at that time for at least some of the answers and then figure out the rest of it, maybe with the use of other technology. But I have a feeling that once, once this idea came along with, with putting music to be buried underground for a thousand years, I think there might be other, there might be other factors in the world that, might want to do the same thing. I think, you know, there, there might be somebody out there who might want to do this for film or for television scripts sure, um, absolutely. or, you know, budget constraints and things like that. All right, let's change topic a little bit here, but stay with music. Uh, we learned in late last week, we heard about these plans for Ontario place. Now I'm not asking you about whether you like the water slide idea at the new Ontario place, but one of the things that they've talked about for the, government and private sector rebuilding actually it's not government it's all private sector that will be rebuilding ontario place in toronto is that the budweiser stage is going to be revamped and uh, what they're saying it's going to be now is it'll be an outdoor venue that can host twenty thousand people and then it can be made into uh for winter time an indoor venue that can host up to nine thousand people so it can be used year round now Eric, with a brand new additional now concert venue in Toronto, because you already have Air uh, Scotiabank Place or you have other ones, what does this mean for First Ontario Centre here in Hamilton? Because one of the things that this that we have always been able to bank on yeah. is if you can't get into the big arena, if you can't get into Scotiabank or formerly Air Canada Centre, we're the place that the artists will come if there's a, a, a conflict. But now if you've got a second place that's just as big or can host 9,000, what does this mean for Hamilton? Um, it's bad news. And, and I don't think that there's any, uh, there's any way to sugarcoat it. You know, what this does is that it gives the fourth major city in terms of concerts and, and arts 
in North America, which is Toronto, a new place for those artists that could easily sell out 3,000 people for, say, Massey Hall, but can't do 19,000. So this is somewhat in the middle. Um, it's, it's going to be bad news at a time when I thought two weeks ago that places like Hamilton, London, Kitchener, Sarnia, um, those kind of places that normally don't get major festivals or, or tour stops would be getting it because of COVID, at least in the next three years or so, while, um, you know, constraints and um, look, because here's the thing. It takes about sometimes 18 months to plan a tour. And right now, these major tours are looking at Toronto saying, you're still in stage two, a little bit of stage three. We're going to skip this until we figure out what is going on in Toronto and Ontario. So you have then places like Hamilton perhaps being a stop because it's less crowded. You can easily have, you know, six to seven to 8,000 people there and bypass Toronto's mess altogether. I'm not so sure that that is the case anymore with this new announcement. And I think for, for Hamilton place, um, I, 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 I think it's a knock against them. I think it tells people to continue to come to Toronto and skip those London, Sarnia, Hamilton, Thunder well, Bay places yeah. right away. Eric, I mean, look, I, I go back. One of the examples that we had in the last number of years was when Garth Brooks came here about four or five years ago and sold out. I think it was either five or six shows at first Ontario Center. It was enormous. He, I mean, he just, they opened the ticket. and But he the reason, as I understand, memory serves, and I could be corrected on this, it was because at the time that he was coming here, there was no appropriate venue in Toronto that was available right. because of conflict. Yeah. If this is now available, and I believe MLSE that owns or that operates the, the – um, the Leafs arena, the Raptors arena, and they also work with live nation, which is now the one doing this one. So if you now have a conflict in the arena, well, we still want Garth Brooks in our building in, in Toronto where the most people are. I, I don't see the logical second step then being Hamilton anymore. I see the logical next step. If we have an indoor venue as well, being this one, unless the one exception would be this one, it says it's going to be 9,000 seats indoor. If it's a wintertime concert and you need more than 9,000, maybe then it still rolls down the road. But anything for the summertime, boy, I, I don't see it as good news. Yeah, if I'm if I'm those those if I'm those building owners and and those promoters in Hamilton, I, I might be needing to pull out all the red carpets and all the stops to ensure that Hamilton doesn't get forgotten about. Perhaps making better deals to bring an artist in there. Um, you know, private planes, private jets, like those enticements for people to play there are going to have to be stepped up in order for people to not want to come and play in Toronto. Um, and I think in the beginning, it's going to be interesting to see, you know, who actually wants to play in this new venue. Um, but I, I think if I'm in Hamilton, I, I better hope in that that there's a lot of enticement and there's a lot of reward to bypass a major city like Toronto and come to Hamilton. And no knock against Hamilton, because you know, and no, it's, it's... Knows that I love it. But it's so close to, to it's it's the reality. It's, it's so the reality. Close, yeah. If you're a big star, you 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 would probably. Ra- I mean, I hate to do this, but you'd probably rather say Toronto on the concert T-shirt than Hamilton. That's just Absolutely. look. We we got to live with that. It's life. Hey, we got to run. But yeah. a, a little while ago, we were playing. I said Gary Newman Cars. Unfortunately, was the first record I ever bought. What was the first record you ever bought? Uh, Jerry Lee Lewis, Great Balls of Fire. Bought it at Craig's for ninety nine cents. Do you still have it? 
I do. I'm staring at it right now. And See, I knew you would. I said that. I knew that you would. Eric Alper, I knew you would still have your first album. Mine uh, probably is in a landfill somewhere taking 4,000 years to dissolve. It's one of the very few things that I've kept from my childhood, and that was it. (laughs) Eric Alper, listen, always appreciate having you on. Thanks for taking time today. Thanks, man. We'll talk soon. Have a good week. Absolutely. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcasts or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.